I'm guessing if you were all here, you'd be applauding right now. Have good reason to praise. If you have your Bible with you, go to Matthew 18. Maybe you have it on your phone or you have an iPad with you or perhaps you have a hard copy. So pull that out in your home and open it up to Matthew 18. And we want to go over a few details with you first before we uh, jump into this. I think what we're doing here today and what we'll be doing in the weeks ahead, we don't know how many weeks there are ahead of us of this. It'd be great if there's only like one more, but we don't know for sure. But I'm convinced this is something that not only did the disciples never envision, but they'd be all over it. How do I know that? Well, I know that the disciples were determined to use whatever means possible to advance the gospel. Paul's actually known by saying, if by any means I might advance the gospel... Well, this is something that I believe that Paul and the disciples would be all over. They'd be using technology, using this opportunity. And I hope you're all over it in using these opportunities to speak into the lives of coworkers and friends and maybe relatives, maybe people right in your neighborhood and maybe in your own apartment building or across the street from your house, using this opportunity to talk about God things. Because let's face it, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of unknowns. And so... People are using these times to express that, and, and it's, it's coming out in various ways, but it's very cool to watch all the things that are being posted online. Uh, I could say you all have too much time on your hands because the amount of things that are being posted online is just amazing, and, and the humor that's coming across is fantastic. And that reminds me, I want to remind you to send photos in this morning. Um, hashtag virtual church, uh, NH church. If you can send that in, you probably see that coming up online right now, that the reminder, you can send photos in of where you're watching from, what you're doing, what, what does it look like in your living room or in the place where you're doing this at? Get, send us a photo in if you're sitting on the sofa. Maybe you're sitting there in your jammies or you got your slippers on. Just send us a photo and, and remind us where you're watching from. We received notes from people in Spain last week and from Germany and from Russia and Texas and Florida and Iowa and in Chicago and right here in Michigan, obviously lots of people in East Lansing and Hazlitt and Okemos. So send us a note. Let us know where you're watching from. We'd love to hear from you. I'm understanding, I know it's true in my life, that we've been inundated with news about this virus. And I had a choice on how to approach this passage this week, whether or not to use this as something that talked further about distilling our fears or to give us an opportunity to really dive into this parable as though we would take a little break from hearing about viruses. So I chose to do that. I chose to take a little break, that we would approach this as the parable and the way that Jesus taught it and see how it applies to our life. And I think what you're going to see is in the midst of this close living that you're doing, in the close quarters that you're in right now, you're going to find that this parable is very applicable to the life that you're living in this moment. And that's why I invite you to go into Matthew 18 with me. You're going to find this text is really weighty, and it comes with full force pressure on every person who reads it. And very likely, it's going to produce questions in your life. It's going to cause you to ask questions, and, and we can't do Q&A right now, obviously, in the auditorium like we typically would do, but you can send your questions in. You can email them in, and as, as questions trigger in your mind, you may want to get an answer, and I'd be happy to respond to those questions if you want to send them in. Here's what it's going to lead you to do. Based on what you hear today and based on what you believe about God, it's going to cause you to take action. 
we believe here at New Hope that what you believe about God determines what you do next. You're going to come to some conclusions this morning about what you believe about God, and it's going to cause you to have to make some conclusions about what you're going to do next. Even if you've never read the Bible before, even if this is your first time streaming a church service or being part of anything like this, at this moment in time, I'm guessing you've heard something about Jesus hanging on the cross. You've probably heard about it in society in some way, about that man from 2,000 years ago who was nailed to a Roman cross. Even if you've never been in church before, you've heard about that. It's the culmination of events on that particular Friday as it approaches Easter morning. And it reaches a pinnacle when he cries out, it is finished. And we're told that he screams it out really, really loud. And I wonder if you've ever stopped to conclude, what was he talking about? Why end it that way? What was finished? The crucifixion? The torture? The anguish of hanging on the cross naked? The betrayal of his friends? Is, is that what was finished? Is that what he's talking about? We're going to leave that particular question for just a moment as we dig into the book of Matthew. And Matthew 18 talks about this issue in a huge, huge way. But before we do that, I want to pray with you. Let's pray together about what's going on in our world and how God will prepare our hearts for what we're about to look at. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you with our hearts prepared. We've sung a worship song. We'll sing more to you in just a little bit, God. But right now we stop and we pause our hearts to ask that you would prepare them for how you want to speak to us through this text. At the same time, God, our, our minds can't help but wander, and we're thinking of what's going on in our world, so we pray that you would give our leaders of our nation wisdom, that you would go before them, help them to make godly decisions. Father, we pray for our health care workers. We ask that you'd give them supernatural physical strength. They're enduring so much right now, Lord God. So we pray that you would surround them with love and with comfort and strength and encouragement. Father, we pray against this virus. We don't know what you're accomplishing through it specifically, but I know that you're using it to turn hearts towards you. So I ask that you would accomplish that purpose, draw hearts towards you, but God, we ask that you would abolish it, wipe it out, remove it whenever you're done using it to accomplish your purposes. But in the meantime, Father, Draw hearts toward you. Expand your kingdom through this. We pay for, pray for our, our friends who are not with us and our family members who are traveling and spread out across the world. God, we pray for our missionaries. Strengthen them, encourage them, be close to them. And now we pray for ourselves and, and we ask God that you'd focus us, convict us, Bring clarity to us through your word. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, and I, I know you would say that if you're here with us right now, you'd say amen. We bear a heaviness, a huge heaviness when wrongs are committed against us. 
If you've got your Bible open to Matthew 18 right now, you can look up at verse 15, and you can see where Jesus talked about people committing wrongs against you, committing sins against you. Those kind of things, they weigh on us, and they can stop us from becoming all that God intended for us to be. Things that other people might have done to us in our own past, those things, they carry with us. They don't just go away, and they can hold us back. So Jesus spoke to that issue. If you've got somebody in verse 15, he says it's sinned against you, go to that person, confront that person. Talk to them about the wrong that they've done to you. Well, Peter's listening to this. Peter's right there with everybody else, and and he hears Jesus say that in verse 15. And as you move forward through chapter 18, you find Peter's not letting that issue go. It's apparently haunting him, and I don't know why he asked the question, but he asked this question. Look with me at Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Apparently, Peter has internalized Jesus' teaching, and he's put it within himself because he's got some concern about what his responsibility is, like, how often shall I forgive somebody? Why that question? Has there been somebody who's committed a wrong against Peter? He's young, but that doesn't mean that somebody hasn't offended him in some way. Bad business deal? I don't know. Did somebody betray him? Has somebody been lying to him? Some type of emotional blow, and he feels some degree of betrayal. According to the rabbis at this period of time in the first century when Christ walked the earth, the rabbis actually said, You forgive someone up to three times, but on the fourth time, they get no forgiveness. Uh, I want you to see the actual quote, and just listen to this as I read it. If a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive him. Uh, That rabbi said that in the first century. It's like the soup Nazi on Seinfeld when he said, no soup for you. This is like, no forgiveness for you. No more forgiveness on the fourth time. So Peter's question is this, does forgiveness have a limit, Jesus? And he thinks he's being generous. He thinks he's being generous when he answers his own questions and he offers this response, seven times, Jesus? If the rabbis say three times and I say seven times, is that good? Is that a good thing, Jesus? And Jesus has a response him. This is a fascinating response because it's typical of a disciple-rabbi relationship. I'll show you that in just a minute. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. It's common for a student in the first century to respond to the rabbi the way that Peter is doing this. And it was common for the rabbi to respond the way that Jesus is responding. The student would come to his teacher knowing full well that the teacher would either respond with either a passage of Scripture or the teacher would respond with another question. It's known as the Jewish art of questioning. I I did it as a dad with my kids when they were little growing up. They'd ask a question, I'd ask them a question in response, trying to get to the heart of why they're actually asking the question. Jesus blows Peter away with his response when he says, 70 times seven. You can imagine the shock on Peter's face when his whole life he's been told three times, 
The fourth, no more. And he thinks he's being generous when he says seven times. Before we go any deeper, I want you to understand why Jesus responds this way. And in order to do that, you have to know just a little bit about the Bible. And in case you don't, I want to help you understand what's going on. We know Adam and Eve are the parents of humanity. And Adam and Eve had children. Their first two were Cain and Abel. As time went on, Cain committed murder. Cain murdered his brother Abel. And when God confronted him on it, he said, your brother's blood screams to me from the ground. What have you done? God then tells Cain that he's going to be separated from his family and he has to go out into the wilderness. And Cain's fear is that somebody's going to take his life. He says, well, if I do that, somebody's going to take vengeance upon me and I'm going to be killed. And so God has this response for Cain that he's going to protect him. And and this is God's response in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 4. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Now, fascinatingly enough, if you just go forward a few more verses in that same chapter, you find Cain's great-grandson by the name of Lamech, who's in danger of losing his life, and Lamech is saying that if I'm going to be killed, there's going to be vengeance for my death. Look with me at that particular verse. It's on verse 24. If Cain, he's talking about his great-grandpa here, this is Lamech speaking, If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Here's the truth of humanity. Revenge courses through our veins. It's part of our fallenness. It's something we greatly desire. Our inclination as humans is to return evil for evil without any limit whatsoever. But God says his standard is just the opposite. He actually says, vengeance is mine, it belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. You and I are not left with the option of vengeance. We're not supposed to carry that out. So Jesus takes this really familiar statement to people who were in the first century who knew Old Testament history super, super well. He takes this really familiar statement of Lamech's revenge And he completely reverses it and turns it on his head and transforms it into a principle of forgiveness. Uh, Just in context so that we're really clear, Jesus is not saying 70 times 7 and then you can punch his lights out. That's not what he's referring to here. But rather what he's saying is mercy over and over and over and over and over. Mercy. So you understand the setting of where Jesus is speaking from, using an Old Testament statement and transforming it into mercy. And then he transitions into this parable that you're about to see here, and it starts in verse 23. Remember what parables are. God taking a physical reality and laying alongside a spiritual reality to draw out a truth for us to understand. Let's go to the parable as Jesus describes it. Matthew 18, verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And he's talking about people in his kingdom there, by the way. I'll explain that in just a minute. Verse 24, when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, the term slave here is being used in the broadest sense. 
If you are a slave within the kingdom, it's only because every single person under an ancient monarchy owed their allegiance to the king. So in the broadest sense, the term slave or servant is being used here because everyone is in subjection to the king in that they owe their total allegiance to the king. So the occasion is this. There's a regular time of year when the kings would settle accounts, and they would call their governors to come in before them, the governors of all of their provinces. Now, the governors throughout the course of a year would have been collecting taxes. They hired tax collectors to collect taxes. The tax collectors would bring it to the governor. Then the governor was supposed to pool it together, and then he would bring it to the king. And the king has chosen a time to settle accounts with his governors. And during this period of time, he's asked them to come before him. Now, you need to understand that a a talent is a unit of measure. We use the phrase a ton here in the United States. Well, we know empirically we're thinking in our mind that's 2,000 pounds, but we use the term interchangeably all the time. Well, a talent is a unit of measure. It's referring to the largest monetary value in the first century. So if you picture a really, really big stack of money right now, you're picturing 10,000 talents. Like, this is talking about lots and lots of money. We've been using the term a lot in the news this week, trillions of dollars, like a stimulus package here in our nation for things that the government wants to do. A really large image pops in our mind when we think of trillions of dollars. This issue of 10,000 talents, it's meant to do that. It's meant to stimulate the thought of a limitless amount of money. Actually, in the historical records of the first century, we understand that Rome collected taxes from four distinct provinces, Idumea, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And throughout the course of a given year, Rome would collect 900 talents from all four of those provinces combined. That's just 900 talents. That's not even close to 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents amounts to more than 11 years of taxes from all four of those provinces combined. So we're talking about an unpayable debt here, something this guy can't possibly reach. The estimate in today's currency would be billions and billions of dollars. So we've got a king who's also a financier, and he's got a vast kingdom. His empire is massive. To the degree that he can even afford to have that kind of a loan out there, that kind of a debt. So clearly this empire is massive, and this is just one of his governors that's coming before him. Keep going in the story. Verse 25 says this, but since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made literally, to be sold into debtor's prison. Uh, Obviously not to settle the debt. The family couldn't possibly be worth that. The top price that a really great, super healthy slave would get would be just one talent. How is he going to get restitution by selling the family? Well, in the parable, the selling of the man and his family is this picture of how hopeless his situation is. Not that the king is getting fair equity. So follow the story, verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. 
Can we just agree right now, just, you know, all of us that are dialed into this story, can, can we agree? That's pretty foolish. It's really foolish to suggest that it's even possible for him to repay the debt. How's he going to pay it back? Could we even say arrogant, prideful, to think that he actually could gather the resources to pay back this debt? I've found this to be true. Maybe you've found it to be true in, in your world that when people are first convicted of sin, when they first come to an understanding of who they are before God, people are often inclined to make promises to God that they're going to make themselves better, just like the promise this man made to the king. A, a person under conviction might come before the king and say, I'm going to shape my life up. I'm going to make myself better. And, and what they're doing in the midst of that is they're acknowledging sin. They're saying, yeah, I do have sin. I, I've got to make this better. And they want to make amends, not realizing that they can't, not realizing that they can't fix it. And yes, sure, we should strive to be better. We should strive to make amends and improve our life, but they can't possibly do that to pay God back. A, a major indicator of someone who really actually lacks a spirit of forgiveness is an arrogant attitude. You're going to see how both of those principles that we just talked about carry over into this particular story, into aspects of this. So this guy in the story, without any resources or without any hope whatsoever, he's begging for more time. He's begging and promises complete repayment, which is a total impossibility. So we've got someone who's guilty. He's devastated. And he has no defense. And he offers none. He offers no defense whatsoever. He just knows he's got to do something about it. Watch verse 27. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. The word forgave there is actually the word canceled. So the king knows that despite, the king knows this, check this. The king knows that despite his good intentions, he could never repay. But I want you to hear this really closely because this is the nature and character of your God. But do you notice the king doesn't reprimand the one who's in his kingdom? He doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't even admonish him. Rather, just like we saw last week with Jesus extending his hand to rescue Peter immediately, just like Jesus rescuing Peter from drowning, immediately the response is right there, I forgive you. The word compassion, you've probably heard me use this before at New Hope if you've been here for any length of time. It's in your notes this morning. You'll see it on your screen as well. It's splagnizomahi. And I've joked before, I know it, it sounds like an Italian pasta dish, but it's this thought of your gut aching. It, it says to have your bowels yearn. This is what the king is feeling. He's hurting inside for this one who owes him this great debt. Now, just put yourself in the framework of this individual hearing that the king's been moved towards compassion for you. 
Like, how great would it be if tomorrow you received a call from your mortgage company and they said, your debt has been canceled or your credit card companies contacted you and said, you have no more debt with us. Like, what would you be feeling inside if that was billions of dollars? That's what the writer's trying to relay here. You're released. You no longer have an obligation to us. And that's that next Greek word in your notes, apoluo, to forgive, to release, to set at liberty. Can we agree again that this is another remarkable point? Jesus is such a radical. Can I get an amen on that one? You can say it at your home. It's okay. If you're sitting there, you say it by yourself if you want. Jesus is such a radical because what he's doing is he's painting this self-portrait, and it's so subtle they don't even realize what he's doing. He's describing himself. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a king who wants to settle accounts. He's describing himself in the midst of this. I'm quick to forgive. I have incredible compassion towards you. But now the story takes a really ugly turn. And that's verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. By the way, that's, that's just a day's wage. That's what a denarii is. We'll come back to that in just a minute. He owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Now, there's an image. That's the image you commonly expect from a loan shark. That's what you think a loan shark would do. Pay me what you owe me. And money lenders come around, and they want to be paid back. Verse 29 says, so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. Do you notice, church, maybe you've read that story 20 times before. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. Those are the exact same words that he just used with the king. This one who's just been forgiven used that same phraseology. But in his case, it evokes no sympathy whatsoever. There's no splagnizomahi going on here. There's no aching of the bowels. Verse 30, but he was unwilling. In the Greek language, that word unwilling, it's written in the present imperative, meaning it goes on and on and on and on. He was unwilling consistently. He was repeatedly being begged, and he's unwillingly refusing repeatedly over and over again, no, 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 no. So the verse says he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Unfortunately, Jesus' point is this is the way that humanity, and he's speaking to the church here, this is the way Christians are capable of treating each other, that we've been forgiven so much, and that we wouldn't extend the forgiveness, and the attitude as you read it, it just turns your stomach. Now, the amount of money that's owed, it's not insignificant. A hundred denarii was quite a bit. One denarii was one day's wage of a common laborer. So you got a hundred days of wages. I don't know what you earn in a hundred days, but this is a common field laborer. Whatever he would have earned during that hundred days, that's what he owes. It's not insignificant, but hear this. 
It is insignificant. It is microscopic in comparison to how he's been forgiven. So he throws that one in prison. And he wants to be repaid. And even a cheap slave sold for 500 denarii. So he's more than getting back the money that he's owed. But he has no compassion for that one. So watch what unfolds here, verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Should be a great reminder for us that other people are always watching us. Others are always watching, they're taking note of our actions. Diasphenon is the word that's used there. It's not in your notes this morning. It's the word for reported, and it means that they explained in detail. They're watching everything that's going on. It occurs only twice in the New Testament. But they're seeing it, and they're going back to the king, and they're saying, you won't believe what he just did. This is the king's response in verse 32. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? This is a really critical component here. When this one who owes the king billions begs for forgiveness, the king forgives him instantly. The king forgives him immediately. But this same king, speaking to the same servant, when he shows no mercy whatsoever, the king says, you're wicked. There's a name change there. You're wicked in your behavior. I had mercy on you. And now he calls him out. Watch verse 34. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that it was owed him. Keep going. Verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. What's Jesus been doing here? He's been making very, very clear for you and for me those of us who belong to the kingdom, you believe in Jesus this morning? You a member of the kingdom of God? He's been making it really clear how much we have really been forgiven. Incalculable. How much he's given to us. And I find it absolutely fascinating that Jesus sees no inconsistency here in the actions of a heavenly father who forgives with such extreme measure yet also deals so directly with sin in our life. Remember, he's talking to the church. He's talking to believers here. The same Father who forgives with such extravagance towards us, yet will deal with you with the inconsistency in your life when it comes to sin. So we shouldn't take it lightly either. Hear this. Quick and very genuine forgiveness is among the highest of human virtues that Holy Spirit has placed within us. The reason for that is because it's a reflection of the character of God. You have a forgiving nature, you're really emulating God. It's a reflection of the character of God. Do you remember Jesus' statement from the cross? Let's so quickly take you to Easter. 
Jesus' arms are stretched out on the cross. He's drawing in breath. He can barely breathe because the fixation is going on, and it's... Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Even from the cross, it's incomprehensible. God's forgiveness is that extreme. See, when you extend genuine forgiveness, you're really emulating the very nature of Christ, and God honors that. Therefore, and this is a huge therefore, the person who's not forgiving is not showing the fruits of the Spirit. They're not emulating the actions of Christ. They're lacking godly character. So without that characteristic, no matter how good your theology might be, and hear me on this, theologians, if you're not familiar with that word, it means the study of God. No matter how good your theology might be or how moral you might behave, Jesus says, if you lack this capacity, you are seriously lacking the very nature you claim to emulate a Christian who will not relinquish a resentful attitude towards somebody who's wronged them, that's a person who really doesn't understand the grace that God has extended to them. John MacArthur captured it really well. You may have seen his quote already in your notes, but he said it this way, an unforgiving Christian is a living contradiction. Amen, John. I I agree with you on that. Now, let me take you full circle back to where we started. We're going to land this plane now. Go all the way back to the beginning. It's the point of crucifixion. And Jesus cries out in a loud voice, It is finished! What was that? What was finished? The agony, the torture, the pain, the betrayal? Yeah. In human terms, we would get that, but not God terms. Finished is this particular Greek word. It's the last word in your notes, and it's this word teleo. It it means to pay for something, to discharge a debt. What's finished on the cross? The payment plan. God's eternal payment plan, the plan that he devised from eons before we ever existed, a debt has been paid. Instead of saying, it is finished, Jesus said, it is teleo, he could have just as easily said, it is paid. That's what it means, finished. If you're new to church, this is going to feel a little prickly. Maybe, maybe you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus, and this is your first time hearing these kind of things. And I want you to listen re- really, really close as we wrap this up. Because of our failures, because of sin in our lives, we each need debt forgiveness. Just as the amount of money in the parable is completely unpayable, our debt for sin cannot be repaid. The spiritual bankruptcy of every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve is completely unpayable by us. It leaves us bankrupt. 
We have no way to rectify the sin issue. And so we've got a huge debt, and the debt is against God. So because of our failure and because of our need for forgiveness, God instituted a payment plan. And he's saying, you can have your balance sheet wiped clear. You can be completely in the black, and it can be forever for you. See, that's exactly what God does with sin debt. You come to him this morning, you come to him in humbleness and sincere repentance and saying, I've got that. I've never been forgiven of my sins. I promise you, the moment you acknowledge your sin, the moment you come to the king and beg him for forgiveness of your sin, you turn to the only savior who can save you from sin and that mountain of debt is flattened. You can flatten it right out this morning. You can do it right in the quietness of your living room. Maybe you've never dealt with salvation. You're in a really private place right now in your home. You're just you and your screen, and maybe your family's around you, or maybe you're by yourself, but you can say right now, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. Will you be the king of my life? He will extend it to you instantly. You've seen it play out in the story this morning. I'm going to use this phrase, don't wait, twice this morning. Don't wait, first of all, if you're not a believer yet in Jesus. If you want to become a believer, you want to become a Christ follower, you want to become a Christian, don't wait. Because ever since Adam and Eve put on these fig leaf shorts, we've been trying to cover up our failures We've been trying to overcome our failures by saying, I can fix it. I'm going to make myself better. God says, you can't do that. The the debt is unpayable. You can't fix this. That's the first don't wait. This next component is for you if you're a church person and maybe you've known Jesus and walked with Jesus for a long time. Maybe you read your Bible regularly. I want you to hear this component. This plays in as fodder for the story you just heard. In ancient Rome, it was not uncommon for a creditor to actually strangle the neck of someone who owed them a debt, to come up behind them, grab them by the neck, wrench their neck, and choke them to the point where blood would begin trickling out of their nose. That's why Jesus used that image in his story. He said, pay me what you owe me. Well, that's a common image during that period of time. People were being choked in public. Like, how unthinkable is that? How unhuman is that kind of behavior? It seems unthinkable, hard to believe that someone could actually act in that way. And that's exactly Jesus' point. That's the Lord's point to Peter. For someone in the kingdom to be unwilling to forgive another person, it's unthinkable, Peter. Peter, don't put seven times on it. Not even 70 times seven. Keep going, Peter. It's mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Remember, he's speaking of the characteristics of those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking of the church. He's saying, this is the characteristic of what your behavior should be. And he's not talking about the kind of forgiveness that brings salvation. 
God's not saying he only saves those who are forgiving. That would be works righteousness. We can't earn our forgiveness. He's speaking of those who would forgive each other freely because they've been forgiven freely. Those who've been transformed by Christ, who have the Holy Spirit within them. So as you read this, understand this story. It's not excluding you if you fail in forgiving. There will be times when you become weak in extending forgiveness, but don't let that stop you. Don't let that stop you this morning that you haven't yet extended forgiveness to someone. This is a moment to stop back and say, is that true in my life? Have I held back? Do I need to take action on this? So that's my second don't wait. God is honored by immediate obedience in this issue. One of the very few places you're going to find in Scripture where God says, hey, time out. I'm not interested in talking with you right now. There's something going on in your life between you and me. You've got an issue to deal with on somebody you haven't forgiven yet. So God says, if you find yourself coming to the altar to make an offering and you remember that you haven't yet dealt with a brother or a sister, leave your offering and go away and deal with it. Watch this, Matthew 23, 523. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. That's God saying that to you. And I know in the beginning of the service, Kyle talked about online giving. I just want to ask you to pause for just a minute. If you're thinking about giving online today, don't hit that give now button until you deal with this issue. God says time out. Don't give online. Don't give an offering. Don't think that that's worship. If there's an issue in your life where you haven't extended forgiveness to someone, you better check your heart because he's saying, that's one of the fruits. That's how you're going to know that someone belongs to the kingdom of heaven, by the fruit that they produce. And he's saying one of those fruits is forgiveness. This is genuine fruit. God's had to work on my heart in this issue. I wonder if you can identify with that. Maybe you can relate. God's had to deal with me on extending forgiveness over the years to the point where he's made me so much more tender on this issue than what I might have been 20 years ago. And he's patient with us. There's a verse that's precious to me. I want to leave you with it this morning. Proverbs 19, 11, it says this, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It's a great verse. If you've never read that one before, maybe even write that down in your Bible this morning or in your notes. It's your glory to overlook a transgression. I want to speak to you right now if you've been hurt deeply. Maybe the wound you carry is so heavy, somebody's wronged you in a way that's so hard it's kept you from moving forward. And you feel like you're not going to become what God intended for you unless you get past this issue. I want to remind you that forgiving is not forgetting because the reality is there are times, at times in your life, there are continual reminders that we cannot control. 
There might be things in your life right now that are reminding you of the hurt that you've been given. You can't control the reminders. What you can control is the bitterness. So forgiveness does mean ending the bitterness. It does mean ending the anger because that's a choice. And the power of the Holy Spirit will accomplish that through you. Heart forgiveness is not possible in your own power because it's not natural. It's supernatural. So if you're going to pray for anything particular in relation to this this morning, I would say you need to be praying that God would release the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to be able to forgive that person who has wronged you or may wrong you this week. Maybe it hasn't happened yet. And God's going to use this in your life in some way. Just remember at those times that God doesn't neglect your hurt or forget about it. He knows about it. So let's close this way. In Psalm 56.8, God says, He's gathered your tears in a bottle. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Like I said earlier, this would have been a great morning for Q&A, and, and maybe you've got questions as you've heard this this morning, and you want to respond with questions about things that are on your mind right now. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Either email them into me, or email them into the church, or wait until April 1st, because April 1st, Wednesday, April 1st, we're going to begin doing an online Q&A program. So on Wednesday evenings, I'm going to do 15, 20 minutes of questions that you email in, and then we'll take about 10 minutes after that and do a short devotional together. And that, that'll be once a week on Wednesdays in the evening around 7 o'clock. You'll get more information on the email that'll be coming to you so that you can engage with us in that way. And, and until this virus thing is gone, we're going to st keep staying connected in that way. So if you've got questions this morning, can I encourage you to respond and, and send your questions in? I'd love to pray with you right now to end this, and we're going to step into another worship song coming out of prayer. So if you'd like to engage with a little more worship this morning, stay tuned. Just hang with us through prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single soul who's been dialed into what you wanted us to see this morning in your word. We're aware that you had things you needed to communicate and say to us, and you did it through this parable. Who this specifically registered with, Father, I don't know, but you know, because you know everyone who's watching, and you know us intimately. You know the hurts that we're carrying, you know the wounds that we've received, and in place of the wounds, you give your love. So, Father, I pray that you would grant to us the graciousness that you demonstrated in abundant forgiveness toward us. Father, that we would emulate that, that it, that would be a characteristic of our life this week. And especially as we're living in these close quarters, it's so easy to offend each other, Lord God. It's so easy to get on each other's nerves. I, I pray that during these times, we would emulate and be gracious and show the characteristic of Jesus in our life. I ask for this. In his matchless name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.